Onglehani on politics this week. Incompetence, how the SNP rewards failure. When Humza Yusuf was promoted to First Minister, 7,700 children were left waiting to start treatment. It's a disgrace. Awareness, improved treatment for those suffering with asthma. Let's empower individuals with asthma to engage their conditions effectively and promote a world where breathing is a right, not a privilege. And importance, cervical screening. It really does make sense. There are over 100 different types of HPV. Um, so some of them are responsible for cervical cancer. And the, the vaccination that you get in school doesn't give you full protection. The SNP's inept management of Scotland's NHS, the magnitude of failures, the neglect, has resulted in prolonged suffering and deteriorating health for countless patients. Successive SNP ministers have also subjected our heroic frontline staff to intolerable and unsustainable pressure. But the SNP refuses to take any blame. In fact, this is a party that actually rewards failure. With the previous health secretary, Humza Youssef, the worst health secretary in the history of devolution, now promoted to first minister. Parliament recently debated the NHS crisis, and I didn't hold back in my condemnation. The consequences of dereliction of duty are far-reaching and unacceptable. Over 800,000 Scots are on NHS waiting lists. Over 18,000 Scots died last year, died while waiting for treatment. Cancer waiting times in Scotland are the worst ever. And let's be clear, this is not down to COVID. The SNP last met their target over a decade ago. This is a betrayal of trust and a failure to deliver the quality healthcare patients deserve. It's simply unacceptable. Equally distressing are the record waiting times at A&E departments. Urgent action is needed to rectify this dire situation. But does the SNP Green Government act? No, it does not. The failure to meet waiting times for child and adolescent mental health services has left so many of our young people in jeopardy. Again, this is not COVID. The SNP have never met their target for 90% of children and young people to start treatment within 18 weeks. When Humza Yusuf was promoted to First Minister, 7,700 children were left waiting to start treatment. It's a disgrace. The Deputy First Minister also knows a thing or two about announcements and no delivery. When Shona Robeson was Health Secretary, she promised to end delayed discharge from hospital by the end of 2015, seven years on, and over 1,700 beds a day are occupied due to delayed discharge. Moreover, the SNP Greens cut to GP budgets as well as health and social care spending, and this demonstrates a shocking lack of foresight and disregard for the well-being of the population. 65 million from the primary care budget cut, 38 million from mental health care cut, 70 million from social care cut. Since the SNP promised in 2017 to increase the number of GPs by 800, GP numbers have actually decreased by 26. And yet this pledge was made time and time again by Humza Youssef and said in chamber and in the press that they are on target. 
The SNP has undermined the very foundations of our healthcare system, leaving it teetering on the brink of collapse. We now have an alarming number of vacancies for clinical staff. Over 6,000 nurses are missing. Plus, the Scottish Government is spending exorbitant amount on hiring agency staff. And take note, over the past decade, the SNP has shortchanged our NHS by over 17 billion and not fully passed on the Barnet consequentials to our health service. The SNP's management of Scotland's NHS is marred by record failure and it is clear that we have, they have run out of ideas. We need a fresh approach that incorporates modern, efficient and local solutions in healthcare. In light of these pressing issues, we call on the Cabinet Secretary for Health to present a revised NHS recovery plan, one that includes the fact Humza Youssef knew in February projections for his flimsy recovery plan had dropped significantly. Scotland doesn't need a Cabinet Secretary who's just a continuity candidate. There is a palpable lack of accountability and a history of failure. We urge the Cabinet Secretary to deliver a credible plan, a fresh approach that prioritises the well-being of our people and ensures our healthcare system is properly supported. The chronic respiratory disease that knows no boundaries. According to Asthma and Lung UK, around 370,000 Scots suffer from asthma. That's around 1 in 15 people. And asthma doesn't discriminate. It affects people of all ages, races and backgrounds. It robs individuals of their ability to breathe freely, impacting their quality of life. In Parliament last week, we debated what should be done better to tackle this condition that impacts so many. According to Asthma and Lung UK, around 370,000 spots suffer. That's about one in 15. Uh, and it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't really matter about your age or race or your background. And it robs individuals of their ability to breathe freely. In 2021, 96 Scots died from this condition. 67% were women. And these aren't numbers. These are real people with dreams, aspirational, and, and, and loved ones, and they mourn their loss. We have a responsibility to strive for better treatments, research, and resources to improve management of this condition. And through concerted effort, the mortality rate uh, can reduce, and we can get it down to zero if people use their inhalers and get their asthma reviews. We need a brighter future. I also want to address one of the leading causes of exacerbation, and that's smoking. And tobacco smoke is a known trigger for attacks. And it's crucial to educate and support individuals in their journey to quit smoking. But we also must create smoke-free environments to promote smoking cessation programs and have healthier environments. I'm calling on the Scottish Government to also take decisive action to make it easier for patients to switch from traditional asthma inhalers to dry powder alternatives. We have a duty to explore sustainable solutions for managing this chronic condition. And dry powder inhalers, or DPIs, offer a green alternative compared to their commonly used propellant-based counterparts. And DPIs do not release harmful gases into the atmosphere, so reduces the carbon emissions that contributes to a cleaner and healthier planet. However, to bring about this change, effective communication is crucial and the Scottish Government must prioritise education and awareness campaigns to inform patients of the benefits of dry powder inhalers. 
to provide accessible information to healthcare professionals, asthma clinics, and patients themselves, we can dispel any misconceptions and encourage the transition to more sustainable and user-friendly options. Let's empower individuals with asthma to engage their conditions effectively and promote a world where breathing is a right, not a privilege. Together, we can shape the future where asthma management is both effective and sustainable. Thank you. It's so important that women and people with a cervix attend cervical screening tests, usually every three to five years. Identifying cell changes early is vital in order to treat the onset of cervical cancer. Yet almost one in three of those who should be attending the cervical screening appointment don't, which is really risky. Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust is on a mission to tackle this. And to find out more about their work, I spoke with Hannah Wright, the charity's policy and public affairs officer. Jo was a mother, uh, she was a wife, uh, and she was sadly diagnosed with cervical cancer um, not long after she'd given birth to her third child. Um, So this was over 20 years ago um, that Jo was diagnosed, and she found found it very, very difficult um, to find out to sorry can I start can I do that again (laughs) okay so Jo is a mother she was a wife and she was sadly diagnosed with cervical cancer Um, she was diagnosed not long after she'd given birth to her third child Um, this was over 20 years ago before the internet really so she struggled to find out much about her diagnosis about what cervical cancer was and she found that she didn't really know anybody else who was in her situation um, she struggled initially to get diagnosed um, and when she was diagnosed it was at such a late stage that she st- sadly died as a result of cervical cancer um, in her memory her husband set up Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust um, shortly after she died so that women wouldn't experience what, what Joe had experienced. You've told me Joe's story. Can you tell me more about cervical cancer? Yes, so cervical cancer is one of the most preventable types of cancer. So we're very fortunate in this country that we have um, the HPV vaccination programme and cervical screening. And a combination of those two programmes can potentially prevent cervical cancer from developing. So we actually at Joe's can see a future where cervical cancer is eliminated. Um, So cervical cancer in itself, um, as the name suggests, is cancer of the cervix. Your cervix has three main jobs, I guess. Um, So it's very important during periods. It can control the blood flow. When you're pregnant, the cervix plays a role in keeping the baby in the womb. Um, And then during childbirth, um, it kind of opens to allow the baby to be born. So cervical cancer is when that specific part of your body um, is affected. To be clear, the cervix is the womb. And who gets cervical cancer? Who gets diagnosed? Any woman or person with a cervix um, could potentially be diagnosed with cervical cancer. But actually, we know that it's, it's I guess you would classify it as, as, as younger women are more at risk. Cervical cancer is affecting a lot of young people who might not take getting ill that seriously. Is that what you're seeing? We are finding that 
the uptake of cervical screening um, across the country is declining year on year. Um, girls and boys are now offered the HPV vaccine in school as part of the school vaccination programme, which is a really positive thing because HPV is responsible for almost all types of cervical cancer. So the HPV vaccine is, is fantastic. But you still need to go for your cervical screening because um, there are over 100 different types of HPV. Um, so some of them are responsible for cervical cancer and the, the vaccination that you get in school doesn't give you full protection. So what we're finding is that younger women now, um, so you, you're invited for cervical screening between the ages of 25 and 64 and younger women now when they receive that first invite are less likely to, to actually attend. And we don't entirely know why that might be, um, but a theory is it's because you've received that vaccine in school, you may consider it not to be as important to then go for your screening. A lot of young women might worry about what happens when you turn up for screening. Could you run us through this? Yeah, we know that there's a lot of misconceptions about screening um, and that there, you know, that women, especially if you've never been, um, can feel a bit anxious about going in the first place. You might hear from friends, oh, it's it's embarrassing, it's painful. Um, but actually, what happens when you go for your screening? You'll receive your invite um, from the NHS through the post and that, that invitation will ask you to make an appointment. So you have to phone your GP practice to, to make your own appointment. So when you go on the day, it's usually a practice nurse that you'll see. They'll take you into the room, into a private room, and they'll have a chat with you. Um, and they should explain you know, what, what's about to happen. You'll then be asked to, to go onto a, a bed. So it's a, a pet bed that's usually behind a curtain and asked to remove your bottom half. Um, so what we say, it can sometimes make it a bit easier to wear comfortable clothing or even a skirt if that's something you're comfortable wearing because it's it's one less layer to take off during that step. Um, you'll then cover yourself with a, with a sheet. Um, so once you're ready, the nurse will, will come back in uh, and she'll use a speculum with a little bit of gel on it uh, and a soft brush um, to to be able to access the cervix. Um, so they will gently use the, the speculum to insert that into your vagina. They will use the brush to gently um, scrape some cells from the cervix. And then that will be put into a little pot, which, sent, which is sent to the lab. So that process takes the actual test itself will, will take less than a minute usually. It's very, very quick. And the rest of the appointment is usually, you know, discussing it, you getting undressed and getting dressed again. Um, so it is quick, quick. It can be uncomfortable, um, especially if you've never had it before um, and if you're feeling anxious, but it should never be painful. Uh, and if you are worried, we would always say to let the nurse know that you're feeling a bit worried about it. Or if you are finding it too uncomfortable, to let them know they can stop the process. They can, you know, you can try again, you can take a few deep breaths, um, but it, it shouldn't ever be something that's that's too uncomfortable or painful. And of course, with any cancer, the earlier it is detected, the better. So once you've had the screening, the that pot that I mentioned with your, your sample in it is sent to the lab and that sample will be tested for the presence of HPV. So that's the human papillomavirus. And like I said, HPV is the main cause of cervical cancer. Um, cervical cancer, though, is a really slow growing cancer type of cancer. So even if HPV is present, it certainly doesn't mean that you have 
cervical cancer because it can take 10 up to 20 years even for, for cervical cancer to develop after HPV is present. Um, so the cervical screening program is designed to catch anything suspicious at a really, really early stage before cervical cancer is anywhere near being developed. Um, so the lab will test for HPV. If HPV is found, then the sample that will then be examined through cytology. So cytology is when they look at the sample through a really strong microscope to examine the, the cells. So if the cells are seen to be normal looking, there's no changes, there's nothing unusual, then you'll get a letter back to say that these are your results. You have HPV, but there's um, the cells are all, are all fine. Um, we'll just see you again in another year usually, or, or, or sooner than you you typically would. Uh, and that's because your immune system can often actually get rid of HPV on its own without any intervention, without any treatment. If when they look at the cells under the microscope and there is some changes that they can see, uh, then you'll be sent a letter saying you have HPV and you have some cell changes. Um, we'd like to take a closer look through the, our colposcopy service. So in the colposcopy service, that's usually in the hospital, um, they can take a much closer look at your cervix to understand the full picture, to see what's going on and to see if any, any treatment is needed at that stage. It's estimated around 5% of all women who go for cervical screening will be referred to colposcopy. And a lot of these are routine referrals. And, you know, sometimes um, treatment is needed. And if that's the case, they can sometimes do that there and then on the day. And it's a case of removing, uh, you know, uh, some cells that might be, um, that might look different under the microscope. But it certainly doesn't mean that you have cervical cancer. Early diagnosis is key, or prevention, of course, is even better than, than early diagnosis. So the cervical screening program, the whole pathway includes um, colposcopy. That is part of, of preventing cervical cancer. So taking away a few cells is much better than a late-stage diagnosis, which is what Joe had. Yes, unfortunately, because she, she was misdiagnosed several times, um, she by the time it was finally diagnosed, it had passed that stage and cancer had developed and sadly it couldn't be treated. We talked about colposcopy and we have an issue in Glasgow around this. What are women telling you when they get in touch? Unfortunately, in NHS, Greater Glasgow and Clyde, women who, are, who do receive that letter to go for colposcopy um, for routine colposcopy are facing extremely long waits at the moment. So it's waits of up to 48 weeks um, to actually be seen in, in colposcopy. Um, now we know that they should be seen within eight weeks. So this is a much longer wait than is expected. And we're hearing from women who are naturally feeling really quite anxious about this and a bit stressed, worried about their, their health, worried about the uncertainty um, of that. Because if you're told you have HPV and you have cell changes that need to be looked at, even if that is something that's very straightforward to deal with, um, it's, it's the not knowing, you know, knowing that you need a next step to your care and then having to wait the best part of a year to receive that. Um, so what we would say to anybody who is in that situation, so anyone who has received one of these letters, um, please do remember, like I said, that cervical, cervical cancer is a very slow growing type of cancer. So because you get this type, this letter, it does not mean that you have cervical cancer um, and it doesn't mean that you will develop cervical cancer over the course of these 48 weeks. So please, I know it's very difficult, but try not to worry. And the, the next thing I would say is, 
please do then get in touch with us. We have a helpline at Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust that you can call for free and speak to one of our trained um, call handlers who can discuss your situation with you, who can, you know, they, they, they know all about HPV and about um, this situation. So please do get in touch with us. Um, and it can help sometimes just to, to discuss it with somebody who, who is informed about this area. So Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust offers a free telephone advisory service. What else do you offer? So for patients, yeah, we have our helpline. So that's available to anybody across the UK who has any questions, any concerns, is worried about anything to do with cervical screening, about HPV or the vaccine, about any diagnosis of cancer or anybody who's going through any treatment. Um, Plus for family members um, as well, anybody who, who has issues for, to do with cervical cancer or screening can get in touch with us. And families are important. We know that when someone gets a cancer diagnosis, it can affect 12 people. Oh, I haven't heard that figure before. That is interesting. And I, I quite believe that is true. Because when you think of close friends, family, relatives, employers, you know, that that's really interesting. We also have lots of information, health information on our website as well. Um, so that's for professionals and for the public. So anybody who wants to know more about this area can go online. Um, we have an Ask the Expert service as well. So anybody can contact us through email um, with any sort of technical questions, I suppose, any medical questions. Um, and we have a panel of experts across the country um, involved in screening, cancer, colposcopy, you know, the whole pathway. And we can send these questions to them and they, they will take the time to, to reply and respond. So you can get in touch with us that way as well. Um, we also have some, some outreach work um, because we know that cervical, can- uh, cervical screening rates are falling across the country and we want to understand why that is and why are why are women and people with a cervix not attending is there anything we can do to encourage people to go if if they choose to do so so in scotland we have a, a small team who deliver training to um healthcare professionals to non-clinical um gp practice staff um, and to the public themselves to to kind of educate and raise awareness about cervical screening and, and cervical cancer. Uh, and we're working with certain groups. So women with a learning disability, for example, we know that um, the, the most up-to-date stat we can find is around 30% of women with a learning disability um, actually go for cervical screening when they're invited, um, which is a really low figure. You know, the, the tar- national target is that 80% of the population go. Um, and that was before COVID. So we actually expect it to be lower than that now. Um, so we're working with um, Enable Scotland to, to work with women directly to see what we can do to support them to, to feel able to attend. Regardless of whether you're waiting for colposcopy or not, if you notice changes or experience pain after sex, please go and see your GP. Don't think you might be wasting their time. And that's all for this week's Gulhani on Politics. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe and follow. For now, until next week, bye-bye.